talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Grammys went off last night and no one was slapped. Here's hoping the same happens here. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! Yeah! It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber in the uh, on the board. And, of course, in the newsroom, Diana and Dave. Uh, Erskine in the cloud is always uh, always in one ear in some form or another. And uh, it's good to be back uh, in the saddle today. Uh, lots of stuff going on uh, on the show. We'll tell you about that over the course of time. But a big, t- uh, you know, and, and again, at a time when we're, you know, there's all uh, all kinds of uh, death and destruction going on in the world. Uh, hence the theme song. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's nice to hear some good news, and uh, that is uh, other. You know, th- uh, well, let's get on with it. Uh, earlier on today, an announcement made, uh, and it's great news uh, for the auto industry and in, in Ontario and the auto uh, assembly industry in in Ontario. And when you think about where we were just a few uh, short uh, months, years ago, uh, remember when they closed down uh, the Oshawa plant and. All of a sudden, that was it. It was gone. It was never coming back. And then somehow, uh, we I remember having um, uh, uh, Jerry Diaz on the show. And all of a sudden, they had spun things around in some way. And they reopened the facility to some sort of minor production. Now, the Ontario and the federal government's each going to spend $259 million to help GM Canada support and transform the company's Oshawa and Cami manufacturing plants. That's in Ingersoll. Uh, this was made a joint uh, announcement between the Prime Minister and uh, as well the uh, Minister of Industry, Champagne. And it was in a press release as well that this supporting more than $2 billion investment by General Motors. Uh, and will obviously take uh, Ontario into the next level of uh, of auto manufacturers uh, and uh, auto manufacturing, which is of course electric vehicles, and uh, as important, the components to supply uh, those vehicles. Here's what the uh, premier had to say uh, earlier on about uh, what this entails. With General Motors committing 1.8 billion dollars to retool their plants in Oshawa and Ingersoll. This major investment, which includes $259 million in support from the province, will bring pickup truck production to Oshawa and electric commercial vehicle production to Ingersoll, as Ingersoll becomes GM's designated hub for its new electric commercial vehicle brand, Bright Drop. Today's investment will secure 2,600 jobs for the workers here in Oshawa and to add a third shift at the plant. Uh, which is great news because remember there was a time and you go back in history a little bit of a history lesson uh michigan uh massive and still is uh auto, north american auto hub and then of course ontario started taking advantage of a lot of that a michigan lot a lot uh, lost some of its business to ontario plants and then the opposite started happening and those plants reversed again so considering at one time we were talking about closing oshawa and now not only uh is it successfully rejuvenated itself it's now adding a third shift uh, obviously, an election coming up for the premier, so uh, watch out. Here comes the swipe. When we took office four short years ago, 
Ontario's auto industry was in terrible, terrible shape. I remember like it was yesterday. Auto companies were shutting down and leaving our province, taking thousands of jobs with them. In fact, because of the previous government's policies, this same plant closed down as well. But today is a whole different story. All that has changed. We now have secured investments from all major auto companies here in Ontario. Working with our great, and I emphasize great, federal and municipal and union partners, we've opened this plant in Oshawa back up and we're securing our auto sector for the next generation of workers. And as the Premier mentioned, working with the federal government, here's what Industry Minister Champagne had to say about all this. Today is proof that the Canadian auto sector is here for the long term. That means more jobs, more economic growth, and certainly more clean vehicles. We are cementing today uh, Ontario's place as the second largest automotive jurisdiction in North America. And that is a big thing, ladies and gentlemen. All right. It is a big thing, considering, again, we all remember when uh, Oshawa, the Oshawa GM plant was pretty much mothballed and uh, and everybody was thinking, my goodness, is this I remember doing interviews. Is this the end? Uh, many uh, professed it was going to be the end of the auto industry in Ontario. Uh, and clearly that is not the case. And uh, it will continue to be a, uh, a hub and a, a powerhouse for the auto industry, which is great for uh, jobs as we get into the uh, transition of electric into electric vehicles. And more importantly, uh, the natural products that go into natural resources that go into uh, sustaining those industries as well. So uh, great news for Ontarians. And uh, uh, when you think about it uh, in, in sort of the, the days we've been experiencing, the months, whatever, years, uh, there's some good news of things bouncing back. So it's great to see. All right. Uh, to continue this happy note, have you ever thought about being a comedian? You know, I've got a cousin who insists could do it like that. Every time there's a family party, a family gathering, even a funeral, he manages to bring people to stitches. But is that the same as standing up on stage and doing it? For 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour and a half. That's a whole different story. Uh, but what if you could take a class on that? We'll talk about that coming up as well. Also, uh, Ginger St. James is going to be joining us later on in the hour talking about a live documentary, uh, a live documentary coming up at the Westdale Theater. Have you ever, and you know what, like lots of people, they're talking about the big job exodus, right? Post pandemic, uh, everybody's going to be changing jobs, changing gigs. Some people are doing things they'd never even thought of before. Other jobs just simply gone. Uh, so, you know, maybe this is an opportune time for you to get up in front of the brick wall, uh, on stage and, uh, and do your thing. There's lots of funny people out there. Uh, have you ever considered doing stand up? I know maybe you're funny at the, at the kitchen party, but can you take it on stage with a spotlight and a crowd of people there? Well, Levity Comedy Club in Hamilton, 120 King Street West, is offering a new series of workshops with Scott, uh, Scott Falconbridge, going over what you need to know to put the routine together and what it's all about being a stand-up comedian, and then perhaps even making a living at it. Let's bring in Scott Falconbridge, stand-up comedian, improviser, writer, actor, and is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, I'm great, thanks. I'm uh, looking forward to doing the workshops. 
Uh, you know, I'm looking at your uh, at your bio here. Just for last, Winnipeg Comedy Festival, Hamilton, or sorry, Halifax Comedy Festival, CBC's The Debaters, Comedy Network, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Obviously, you, you're you're a veteran at this. But when I'm reading your bio uh, and, you, and you've got two degrees, uh, I'm thinking, man, this has got to be a set right here uh, because your two degrees are in. Yeah, my two degrees are in communications and immunology. So. Uh, you can imagine how much fun I had during a global pandemic where there was all sorts of public health communication going on about immunology. I never thought my degrees would actually be relevant to the world, but there we, there we go. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking, you know, both of you decided to get back into the uh, other world. You've got a, a solid future there, and even standing up in, in, in front of people. This is, you could probably do a, a set just on this alone. Oh, and I think at some point I did. I've probably moved on since I've gone through a lot of material over the years. But, uh, yeah, it's it's come up quite a bit, uh, you know, to talking about uh, even, you know, more recently uh, what was going on with COVID. I, I, I use it all the time. So uh, obviously these um, these classes coming up at uh, at levity. What is the difference between the funny guy at the party and a person that actually has the guts to write it all down and stand up and do it in front of an audience? I think it's really just like drive and commitment, uh, because the truth is it's a lot harder when you have to go to a club and you have to do it with strangers. Um, and you know maybe the first time you do it, your friends are there. Uh, maybe the second time you do it, a couple of your friends are there, but you quickly learn that your friends aren't going to follow you around on stage every time. So you have to really want to do it, and you really have to you know, have a little bit of uh, uh, courage to go again and again and again. It looks like a lot of fun, and I remember there was a time when it seemed everybody was doing this. It's a lot harder than it looks, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is, because... Uh, it's it's not always the same. Uh, you, you're dealing with all sorts of different environments. The club environment is just one environment you might work. You know, there's corporates. Of course, the, there's, well, festivals are always a, a joy to do because it, it's it's such a, a, a big deal. And that's a lot of fun. That's usually sort of a reward gig. But there's a lot of difficult environments you have to work over the years from college campuses to corporate situations to just really tough bars. So uh, a lot of people coming out of the uh, out of their homes, out of their cocoons, wherever they've been for the last two years, including uh, performers, musicians, what have you. Uh, where, as a comedian, how do you address COVID? I mean, here we are. We've been beaten to death by this. Do you go up on stage? How can you make fun of it? Do you make fun of it? Do you forget about it and move on? How do you handle the the uh, the, the issue or the topic of the of the global pandemic, or do you just have to go straight at it? Um, I. You know, I just deal with it with humility. Like uh, I just talk about all the things I, 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 I didn't accomplish during the pandemic. Um, and uh, you, I mean, if you keep it real and you keep it, you know, you don't get to the point where you're. Uh, I mean, you're not trying to lecture the audience about what to do or not to do. You just keep it, um, keep it very real in terms of the things you. Uh, maybe didn't accomplish. I mean, let's face it, we were living in a surreal universe while that was going on. So, you know, I, I, I talk about trying to perform in a drive-in movie theater during the mm. pandemic. And, uh, you know, that is something I hope I never have to do uh, <laughs> again because, uh, you know, everyone's in cars. You can't hear anything. <laughs> I think it was two honks for a laugh. Um, it, oh, it, man. Yeah, it was it was a pretty challenging thing. So, you, it, but, I mean, it's funny, right? Like, things that go wrong are funny. 
So you can always use that. So as much as it's a challenge, there's, there's a, a lot of stuff we did during the pandemic that everyone had to deal with. And it's funny, it's relatable. And, you know, you can have a lot of fun with that. Good point. Okay, so what can people learn? If people are interested, what can they learn in this in this uh, in this comedy class per se? What 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 different aspects of the business do you touch on? So uh, we deal primarily with generating an act, taking your life experience, trying to get it down into a set, trying to uh, process everything into relatable, deliverable, likable jokes. Uh, we deal with various aspects of performing and also how to get yourself out there. But the main focus is sort of a fantasy boot camp for standups. Um, and it gives everyone the experience of going through the process of writing a set. And then at the end, of course, you get to deliver a set. We sort of have a graduation show, sort of like an hmm. open mic for the show. And that gives them a chance to perform in front of, in front of a real audience. And if people want to find out more, where do they go? How do they find out more, Scott? Well, levity.com, the website, uh, there's information on, on both, uh, both workshops that we're doing for both uh, beginners and uh, professionals and also, or more advanced people. Uh, also, uh, spots are really filling up fast and there's only a week to go. So uh, if you want to do it, do it soon. All right, Scott Falconbridge with us, stand-up comedian, improviser, writer, actor, Levity Comedy Club in the Hammer 120 King Street West, if you want to be a part of their comedy class. Uh, Scott, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you, too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. There was a bit of blowback uh, when Bezos and Musk and, and Branson and the rest of them started uh, flying up into space for the tourism business. A lot of people saying that money should be spent doing other things. Uh, we know the story. Now a Montreal businessman is going to join the first fully private space crew set to launch uh, on April 6th. Uh, the four people will launch on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, travel to and from the space station in a Dragon spacecraft, uh, along with research, their 10-day mission, including eight days aboard the International Space Station. Sounds like I'm giving away a trip. Uh, includes outreach and commercial activities, so say the company. Man, isn't this uh, incredible? Uh, the first theoretical theoretically space uh, theoretical space uh, tourists in the space station dr elena hyde is with us director alan carswell observatory department of physics and astronomy at york university and is with us now doctor thanks for the time i hope you're well doing well yes uh could do with less rain but um other than that well, we can always take off to another world and see what it's like out there. As a person who studies this and, and, and you know, th this sort of, uh, of uh, discovery and observation means a great deal, what is your thoughts at seeing this stage of space travel where we now have people that are literally taking a, a room uh, on the International Space Station? Well, I agree that it is very exciting. So as a um, tremendous fan of the original series, of course, I did see William Shatner go into space not too long ago. And um, as, as you mentioned, it was very inspirational. So a lot of us saw that and, of course, his reactions real time. And it's, it's you know, very hopeful in a lot of ways. But we have to remember that this is also a private endeavor. And there's been a whole string of private space 
space missions. We've seen Virgin Galactic, we've seen Blue Origin, we've seen the suborbital flights, and we recently saw actually another SpaceX tourism mission um, with their Inspiration4, um, which is actually has a lot of similarities to this mission. It had a crew, um, in this case they had uh, sort of a crew of uh, four that went in orbit around the Earth, but they didn't dock at the space station. So this is going to be much longer, uh, 10 whole days. So potentially even long enough for some of those astronauts to start acclimating to the weightless environment. Um, so it is, it's a little bit different, but it's also just sort of emphasizing we, we do expect more and more people to be going into space in the future with all of these options and the rise of, you know, space tourism. Some financial papers are estimating uh, that, you know, there might be potential to generate quite a lot of revenue this way. So a lot of people are getting very excited with entrepreneurial spirit. However, <laughs> we do have to worry about what we're doing with these launches, um, even the launches that have, of course, uh, uh, environmentally friendly fuels, uh, which is a big, a big deal not to have a, a large carbon footprint. The launch itself is a very, um, well, you wouldn't want to be standing next to it. Let's just right. put it that way. Uh, so we have not just the launching, but putting more and more things into Earth orbit is an ongoing problem. And what we're going to be allowing people to do once they get there, who's allowed to build the first space hotel or who's allowed to put the first, you know, um, mining colony on the moon? Um, are we going to allow SpaceX to put a giant X on the Earth facing side? So all of these questions, uh, you know. Oh, man. I just have this vision of, you know, all of a sudden them opening the hatch and there's somebody standing there in a little bell. Well, ding, welcome to the International Space Station. Take you to your room, sir. Uh, it's incredible when you think about it. Now, do these four people have a purpose up there or are they just basically tourists there along for the ride? Well, I, I don't think that they're they're going to have a, um, a dedicated sort of uh, science mission, but they do have the uh, the Air Force pilot who is you know going to be able to help and former NASA astronaut um, uh, Michael Lopez Alegria, sorry, <laughs> sorry to him. Um, uh, but we're expecting that they will be able to help, but maybe not participate in like a new experiment or something like that. Of course, they're going to be able to take uh, views and um, they're having a little bit of a, um, a similar operation, shall I say, to the uh, the Inspiration4. So Inspiration4 got a Netflix special. And this one, there mm. seems like most of what they're going to be doing is going to be sort of um, broadcasting and showing pre-launch activities, sort of bringing people in to the excitement that way. And I'm reminded a little bit of some of the early space tourism attempts by, by NASA, right? And they had, of course, um, uh, you know, tickets that people could buy to drive the, uh, what a, I forget what it was called, the NASA space bus around their little facility. Wow. Um, <laughs> so it's not necessarily a new idea, but it is kind of a, um, a whole new area. It's something that we as humans haven't uh, haven't had to do before. So space tourism, you know, has this promise of huge numbers of tourists, but 
what is a huge number of space tourists, really? I mean, if mm. you go to Disney World or Disneyland, they're going to get, you know, a thousand people for them is uh, not a large number of people. <laughs> but for space tourists, we've had, you know, trickles. It's been really just a few at a time and it's kicking up. But how, how much will that go to? What number of, uh, you know, what kind of space tourism are we going to set up? And like I said, are we going to allow permanent orbiting facilities for space tourism is that something the international community would be would be happy having in orbit if um as i say if, if they're in charge of also perhaps uh, uh these uh satellite networks the constellations right so that is one area of space tourism that overlaps with this because of the huge amount of money that can be made when you put up a satellite network and that's something that uh we also need to consider when we're dealing with the um upper atmosphere sort of pollution because the more stuff mm. that's up there the more collisions you can have and we definitely do not want collisions in space things are going very very fast and uh you know escape velocity from earth i believe you had an article on earlier about someone speeding their car hundreds of kilometers right. an hour but if you want to get up into orbit you actually have to go about forty thousand kilometers an hour so um, it's, on that it's, note on that note elena so what would these people have to do to train for this i mean i'm guessing you just can't take anybody off the street and do this and put them up there and, and through this stress for however many 10 days it is so what sort of training would they have to do well that's actually really interesting because the um the training to go to the space station is quite a bit more rigorous than the training for um, some of the other civilian missions. So they all have sort of a fitness test. You have to have a strong heart and you have to be able to move around and take a shock to your system because you're going to experience G-forces during launch. Um, however, the amount of training you have had to do recently with the, uh, as I say, the, the Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, actually Virgin Galactic, in theory, you don't need any training for. You can just sit there. Um, but the uh, the inspiration for it's not on par with what you would normally get on astronaut training however these folks going up to the space station they actually do need to get training because you're going to have 10 days of weightlessness you actually have to be able to adjust to that weightlessness so i would have expected them to have started training um you know a pretty good amount in advance uh for that so usually it's about a year in advance they might have had something more like six months so you have to do of course all of the the you know um g-force training and uh additional fitness training and know how to operate in emergency procedures, just in case you have to go and hide out from um, a micrometeorite strike, or if there is a you know a solar flare like with still one a we great deal of had. still a great deal of danger to this. Yes, exactly. This is this is not your average holiday trip, right? No, no, um, it's not. A, it's not a trip to Disneyland. Uh, uh, it's it's going to be fascinating to watch, and we'll talk to you again about this, Doctor. Doctor Elena Hyde has been with us, Director Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Uh, April sixth, uh, four people will travel or take off to travel to the International Space Station. First time for that, and we'll be anxiously watching. Thanks so much, Elena. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, the story of Ginger St. James will be the focus of a special live documentary at the Westdale Theatre.
1014 King Street West right here in the Hammer tonight, 8 o'clock. And this event is part of the Hamilton Original Series, which invites uh, musicians with a solid connection to the city to talk uh, with the host and play some tunes. Uh, And tonight it is Ginger St. James. She is with us now. Ginger, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, Scott Thompson, it's always such a treat to talk to you. I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I hope you are, too. I'm doing very well and always love listening to you and whatever you're up to. It's nice to see you uh, You and other musicians are coming back out after uh, COVID-19. It's one thing to play a show, Ginger. It's another thing to do This Is Your Life. I'm looking at the press release, see baby photos, and hear audio of her singing at the age of three. What's this like <laughs> for you? Oh my goodness. Yes. So, um, I had a tape. I've, I've, I've had this tape, um, obviously for, for many, many years and it was just always on a tape and I thought it would be great to um, be able to have it converted. And I did. Um, so we're going to be hearing some, uh, the very first songs that I ever wrote or I ever sang or the terrible jokes I told or the dirty jokes I told even then. Um, and, and hang out with, uh, Mike McCurley there at the West, uh, Westdale theater tonight. So, again, playing a show, that's a whole different vibe. Uh, what's it going to be like to tell your story? And this is a great idea of having a Hamilton original uh, series for uh, for performers like you. But that must be a different vibe uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, just, you know, I mean, just standing there, but standing there and performing. Isn't this taking off a mask? It's letting us see a side of Ginger we haven't seen before. Oh, sure. Oh, for sure. Like th- these things aren't included in my biography, but they, they might be now. Um, and it even um, brought up some old memories, um, you know, besides like just doing the tapes and I was three, I did tapes uh, when I was 11 with a music teacher who lived across the street. And then I, I'd remembered, I'm like, oh, I'm like, my very first band was in a drum and bugle corps in 1988. Um, so I was in a marching band, um, which I completely forgot about until they're just asking me like, what memories do you have? So I thought, I thought that was I don't know. I, I just think it's really neat. I'm 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 not apprehensive, but I'm just kind of like anything like this that you want to talk about <clears throat> your history and especially things that might have just been brought to light that you didn't recollect until somebody asked you about it. Right. What's your earliest uh, recollection of performing in front of anybody and getting uh, that reaction? Mm, let's see. Um, well, I would say probably in kindergarten at our Christmas concert and <laughs> me and my friend Sarah um, <laughs> got to sing Santa Claus is coming to town. I had a full on list at the time and um, and, and uh, what what the memory was stepping away is that I whispered into the microphone. I don't remember the words. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it, so- was, it was it was great. When did you know this is what you wanted to do for a living, that you wanted to be Ginger St. James? I, I really think it, it came through um, as a, as a youngin. Um, I always enjoyed, like I, I was in dance, I was in theater. I did, I did so many things like that, but I just remember being so um, just, just in love with um, watching 
musical theater. Uh, my my nan had a, a membership to Time Life magazine. Remember, you could like mm-hmm. pay a buck and they'll send it to you. So she'd get you know all these things with like Doris Day and um, like Liza Minnelli or Judy Garland and Bernadette Peters, things like that. And uh, I would just sing all their songs all the time, um, especially. Tomorrow was probably my favorite song from Annie. Um, Mm. And I probably sang that for about two years (laughs) every day, all day. What's it been like for you and, and your band and such to, to make it through this, this time in a global pandemic? Wow. Um, well, um, I guess we all like personally for me, I just sort of like, um, Hmm. So the pandemic hit, I knew I wouldn't be able to keep my apartment. And so I just like took, I was just going to go be a, you know, stay at home daughter again and Mm -hmm. see what happened. Like nobody knew it was, it was so back and forth just for that industry, really specifically of anybody who would be, I'm a talent buyer, who would be a club owner or who would be any, like a musician. And it's just like, you have a job. No, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. It just it, it, yeah. it really seems uh, it was very hard to go back and forth. And so now, obviously, we're all like raring to go and stuff like that. And uh, I think it's wise to like during that time, like bef- before the pandemic, we'd been on the road all the time, like all the yeah. time. And when then hmm. when I had that break, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's Friday and I'm in my pajamas and it's 730 and like nobody can give me enough money to leave uh, my house. And so it was sort of like learning um, more about, you know, like taking care of yourself and deciding, you know, what was for you. And perhaps just because I'm older and I've been around a little bit, um, but uh, it certainly is welcomed. Definitely. for coming back and maybe even for you to report about music now you're like hey here's a concert <laughs> you know that's a very we gave a pair of tickets away to a rod stewart show a couple of weeks ago and i, and I right. speak, i've been two and a half years since i did anything like that it's bizarre <laughs> it is great to have you and uh the rest of hamilton performers back on stage uh where we can all go out and see you do your thing and a presentation of ginger st james tonight westdale theater the story of ginger st james her music her life told by her and host Mike McClurry and uh, all starts at the age of three and the rest is history as they say Ginger so great to see you back out have a great time tonight thank you so much Scott we're going to buy this shawarma with this bitcoin you ready uh, hold on he's creating an invoice he's creating me an invoice right now now listen he's gonna oh yeah make sure to include the tip in there as well all right all right send 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 done Yep, I got it. You got the payment. All right, we did it. Come on over here. Come on, guys. We did it. We bought the shawarma with Bitcoin. <laughs> Touchdown. Set, hit the whistle at, uh, at Tim Hortons Field. Um, yeah, the the candidate for the leadership of the federal conservatives, Pierre Polyev, says he wants to make Canada a crypto capital in the world. Uh, I don't even know what the just ha- what the heck just even happened, but Carmi Levy does, technology analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good to be here, Scott. I, I'm kind of wondering why don't I get applause when I order shawarma? <laughs> do you order and do you order with crypto? <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. I'm just using regular old boring Canadian currency. Maybe I have to rethink that a bit.
<laughs> Are you surprised that this is now being front and center by a candidate for the federal conservatives? Not at all. I mean, it makes for an interesting talking point. It gets people's attention. Certainly, we've been hearing a lot about cryptocurrencies in recent years. The The volume of that is going up. Uh, blockchain, there are a lot of companies that are looking into it. We know that the Bank of Canada uh, has launched a study into the use of blockchain in the national banking system. And, you know, they're kind of asking all the questions, you know, what are the advantages? What are the risks? How do we minimize those risks? What does that framework for policy need to look like going forward? So, you know, the future of currency is digital, whether we like it or not. Whether it's buying shawarma with Bitcoin or it takes some other form, we don't know yet. But Certainly, it makes sense for a politician to raise that as he runs for leadership to say, hey, I get this digital thing and, and you know, it's going to be part of my platform because if we don't do it, someone else is probably going to beat us to it. The devil is in the details, of course, but the fact that he's even going there, I think, well, it's 2022. I think we have to expect that. So does this in somehow legitimize all of this? Does this mean that there will be a discussion moving forward? How does that affect Canadians? I think discussion is a good thing. I think we really have to ask ourselves whether, uh, you know, currencies and currency policies that have been around for hundreds of years are as relevant in the digital connected age as they were before all of this technology came along. Um, and so I think it's it's healthy to have that conversation. Um, but I think we, we proceed quickly at our peril. In other words, this is a major seismic change to uh, the very economic underpinnings of our economy and of the way you and I work and live and sort of how we how we collect money, how we use it, how we value wealth, how we value ourselves. And, you know, to simply say, well, I'm going to come in and decentralize it and woohoo, you know, Bitcoin for everyone, shawarma for everyone. I think <laughs> it oversimplifies the transition. And I think it's it's not as, you know, this is not a populist change. This is it needs to be a very careful, soberly thought out change. Um, and, I, you know, it, that's way beyond a soundbite. Uh, you know, Mr. Polyev may want that, whether he'll be able to achieve it without significantly upsetting the underpinnings of the Canadian economy, still to be determined. How comfortable are we with a currency that is not administered by a government? I think that's the problem, is that if yeah. you look at currencies today, you know, the National Bank of Canada is responsible for fiscal policy and, and you know, our currency falls under that umbrella uh, and Canada's economic message uh, flows through that channel. And so to simply say, well, you know, we're just going to throw all that to the winds and we're not going to have that anymore. And again, I'm, I'm not an economist, but from a technological perspective, it's almost like, look, we have this cool new technology. Let's just throw caution to the winds and never mind economic best practice. It's cool technology. Let's do that. Um, that to me is a recipe for ruin. And I think we really do need to think twice. I, I look to El Salvador, for example, that uh, legitimized Bitcoin. The government moved heavily into it last year. And it's been nothing but a disaster ever since with people losing their money, not getting the support that they need. Um, it was So what has been the problem, Carmi, with that? What has been the down? What has been the, the con to this? What's been the, been the downside? Well, you literally can't shift from gear one to gear 10 in you know, yeah. overnight. It, it, there has to be a gradual transition. The support processes have to be in place. The resources have to be in place. And that was not the case in El Salvador. Uh, and certainly we want to learn from that experience uh, in Canada that if we do move in that direction, that it will be a very methodical, slow transition process to integrate uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain and related technologies into our fiscal system. That if we move too quickly without asking the questions about the potential risks first, we're doing Canadians a disservice and we're unnecessarily exposing them to risk.
So the question for Canadians, who insures Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency? See, that's the problem. You know, uh, we know full well that if the Canadian dollar has a bad day on the markets, everyone looks to the Bank of Canada. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going yeah, to do something? Rates? Exactly. Are you going to do something with Bitcoin? There is no central arbiter. You know, that's that's the whole benefit of centralization is that there's there's you know someone who you know is in charge. And with Bitcoin, that is not the case. And so then the question then becomes: Do you want Canada's national interests to be addressed by well, essentially no one? Do you want the National Bank of Canada to give up, or the Bank of Canada to give up that ability? Uh, and from a national sovereignty perspective, that's a frightening place to go. Yet, you know, we're watching the Oscars last night and uh, or the other night and or even the Grammys the other night. And you're seeing a big actor there selling a cryptocurrency. Sure. And, and you know, by all means, we're going to continue to see that because, uh, you know, Hollywood celebrities have the deep pockets, have the ability to tolerate that kind of risk. They can afford to lose a few million dollars here or there on a bad Bitcoin bet, uh, whereas you and I can't. Uh, the vast majority of us can't. And Bitcoin remains highly, highly volatile. It's a lovely stunt that Mr. Polyev uh, engaged in paying for the shawarma with Bitcoin. But for a currency that can wildly swing double-digit percentages within hours, uh, can you imagine going to a store day after day and paying a, a completely different amount in Bitcoin because the value is con- constantly changing? It almost reminds me of the ruble during the Soviet era. So it's not something that's practical for you and me today. Maybe for a Hollywood actor who can afford to to uh, you know, speculate on high-risk securities and high-risk assets. But for the rest of us, as an everyday fiscal tool, we're nowhere near, near there yet. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, talking about uh, cryptocurrency and could it once replace uh, or eventually replace what we all know and love now. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Today is proof that the Canadian auto sector is here for the long term. That means more jobs, more economic growth, and certainly more clean vehicles. We are cementing today uh, Ontario's place as the second largest automotive jurisdiction in North America. And that is a big thing, ladies and gentlemen. There you have it, Canada's Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, along with the Premier today at uh, the Oshawa General Motors plant, which, you know, probably the last time, well, I don't even want to say that, but remember the last time we were chatting about it, it was when it was closing down. So uh, how bizarre is it today that we hear a news conference uh, from the Premier and the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry in regard to uh, it adding another shift, increasing production, and then uh, electrifying its Ingersoll uh, plant. To talk more about all of this is Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I'm glad to be with you. You know, it, Marvin, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the demise of this plant, and I remember asking you whether you thought that this was the end of the auto industry in Ontario, uh, and now it seems, uh, well, I guess it started way back when with the governments uh, coming together and Jerry Diaz and, and coming up with the deal to uh, to reopen Oshawa, and the rest is history. How do you explain this? What are your thoughts? Well, clearly this is all related to the, the move on the auto industry to, to become greener and to get into the electric vehicle marketplace. Um, what I'm thrilled about in all of this is that uh, as this has been developing, you'll remember it was just last fall that uh, newly elected President Joe Biden had what he called his Build Back Better program, where he wanted people in the United States to buy electric vehicles, but only 
the incentive would only go to those vehicles that were assembled in the U.S. Canada protested, Mexico protested, and nothing really came of that other than the fact that the bill died. There wasn't enough support for it in the House and the Senate, so that Build Back Better program never happened, and that then meant that the car companies were free to put their reinvestment. Now, Jerry Diaz, you're absolutely right, last year held meetings with the big three North American automobile companies saying, I want to make sure Canada gets some of that money that you're going to spend to redevelop. He also said, by the way, I'll work to bring the province and the federal government to the table. And that's what's been going on. We've seen this now. This is probably about the fourth or maybe fifth announcement in which the federal and provincial government brings some money to the table to encourage those automobile companies to be here. Now, I will say this, though. Today's announcement feels to me like a rerun. I swear to God, I heard this announcement before. The difference was that at the time, the minister wasn't available, the, the, the provincial counterparts weren't available. So I actually think they announced this maybe three or four months ago, but today was the day where they could get the photo op and, and the pomp and ceremony with this. I say that to you because the Cami plant in Ingersoll has actually had a countdown clock to when they were going to produce their last gasoline-powered vehicle, and that expires in the next month or two in Ingersoll, and then the idea was to close the plant temporarily, revamp, and come back as building electric vehicles. I'm not sure it would happen in 2022, but I think it happens in 2023. So this, again, is part of that evolution, and I'm thrilled by it. Uh, what about how important is it that uh, not only we assemble these vehicles, but things like the battery technology and even the, the natural resources and such, and uh, that Ontario completes this picture? Yeah, again, the best answer to this is the more we can be involved in every aspect of vehicle production, whether if we could you know, harvest the rubber to make the tires or get the minerals to make the batteries, build the batteries here. The more you can do, the more you make yourself an integral part of the whole, and thus they can't one day down in the future say, well, I'm going to close this or I'm going to close that because we don't need it anymore. So I, I just think the more pro the province can do this. Now, Doug Ford has had a bit of a, uh, you know, come to God moment on this. A few years ago, he wasn't the least bit uh, in, in favor of electric vehicles. You might remember after he was elected almost four years ago, the first thing he did was cancel the vehicle incentive program for electric yeah. vehicles. And now he's come the other way around that he's uh, uh, putting government money into building these plants and saying, I want 400,000 electric vehicles assembled in Ontario every year by the year 2030. I mean, again, I think that conversion is a wonderful thing, but it is, it is amazing to see these changes, how fast this is changing in the marketplace. It really is when you stop to ponder it, because uh, many were wondering if we would ever get to this to this place. Uh, you talked about Biden and Buy American, and really, at the end of the day, is that not about domestic politics for him? Buy American usually means Buy North American, which would conclude Canada and Mexico. I mean, that's the supply chain, is it not? Right. So let me just turn it the other way around and say, normally when they say Buy American, they mean don't buy Chinese, don't buy Russian, don't buy yeah. Indian. And, and um, the nice people south of our border in the United States often think of Canada as the 51st state. So nobody in the United States really says, oh, no, I, I, Canada can be in the club. Sure, let's have them join it. But you always have to negotiate that. We're kind of that forgotten neighbor to the north. And so we have to get in there. And I, and I think we had a friend. Remember this nice gentleman, Senator Joe Manchin out of West Virginia, who for many Democrats is a thorn in the side. But he's been a great friend of Canada 
saying that I'm not going to support anything if it keeps Canadians out of the picture. So I think, again, it's a bit of nationalism, but it was never really aimed at us. Can I also say, I'll just editorialize here, that I was never quite that certain when it came to Donald Trump. He was known as saying one thing and doing something different. But I think mm. this is more traditional in the role with the United States. What will this transitional period look like uh, for employees and the industry on on uh, from a mechanical level and, and and a production level? Will this be relatively smooth from one to the other, or because obviously people have said the the assembly, especially of the engine components of a, an internal combustion engine, much different from that of an electric uh, uh, engine, much fewer moving parts and such. How does that change the template or the footprint of the automotive industry as we know it? Yeah, so what you just alluded to is it really depends upon what part of the industry you're in. Clearly, electric engines are, are assembled differently. They have different components. They don't have uh, fuel injectors. They, they don't have the, the, the internal combustion aspects of the engine. Uh, they, they need other things. So if you're in the engine division, let's say you're in an engine plant in Windsor, you're an engine plant in St. Catharines, there's going to be significant re-education and retooling of what goes on. Now, once you build the engine, I'm not sure that the assembly of the vehicle is that much different. Clearly, the engine has to drive uh, a, a rod uh, to, to move the car to cause the wheels to turn. Uh, and I don't think that's all that much different than the other one as we go. So, I, and then when you think about the car itself, the interior compartment, the seats, the steering wheel, what have you, I think it's pretty much like everything else. So, depending upon where you are, there's got to be some re-education, retraining, but also keep in mind today that the car industry does use an awful lot of robotics. There isn't any manufacturing industry in Canada that does not make great use of robots. I've been lucky enough to visit some of the local car plants and I was struck very much at how robots now do the most dangerous work. I, I can remember 40 years ago pictures of a, an assembly line at Talbotville near St. Thomas in which they were making Ford cars and people would crawl into a trunk to do some welding. And I thought, my mm. gosh, you've got 18 seconds to get in there, get the weld done and get out before something else happens. That seemed dangerous to me. Well, now that's all done by the machines who get programmed to do that. The workers add value where they can, and then they supervise the whole uh, prospect. So, I, again, I think there's, there is uh, re-engineering that has to happen, but... I think from the people, it, it's just part of the evolution. Just like we come up with a new model and pieces go together differently in a new model, these new electric vehicles, they'll, they'll look a bit like the old models, but there'll be new pieces and they'll be fairly easy to transition from one to the other. Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, talking about the announcement today at the Oshawa plant, General Motors plant in, in Oshawa, about uh, reinvesting in the auto industry in Ontario. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We have talked about this uh, for a long time now, and I think this was going on uh, before the pandemic. The pandemic is just, like it has for many things, uh, heightened this. Uh, do you feel like the country has become more polarized? 
Yeah, uh, and you're not alone. A new research survey by the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan suggests Canadians are becoming more divided, with some saying issues that have let, uh, led to them reduce their contact with family or friends. About three out of four said they believe society has become more polarized. Why? Uh, pandemic and the last federal election. Uh, two of the most divisive issues of the past year, and even family. 40% saying they've reduced contact with family and friends over an argument about the pandemic uh, politics. Uh, I remember some saying we can't see our families. That's not such a bad thing uh, during a pandemic. Uh, why do we feel the way that we do? Let's bring in Jason DeSano, Director of the, of, the, of the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan and is with us now. Jason, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. I'm doing well, thanks. Hope you're doing well, too. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, it, it seems that Canadians always have different opinions. I mean, we're a vast country, vast regions. Uh, you know, we've certainly been through issues with Quebec over over time and with history and such. But I don't think I've ever seen it as divided in in the time that I've been on the planet anyway. How do you explain it all? How do you explain the sudden divisiveness? Well, I guess it's been gradual, certainly not sudden, but we're seeing it more after a pandemic. Yeah, I think the extent to which we've been divided, and as you mentioned, you know, we've, as Canadians, have certainly been divided on a number of issues over the years, whether we're talking about supporting the Iraq war, Quebec separation, just a whole host or a whole litany of different issues. But I really think the extent to which those divisions that sort of exist have really sort of percolated to the surface over the last couple of years, and, and the pandemic has actually done quite a bit to sort of amplify those divisions. Um, you know, what, what's happened over the last uh, couple of years are folks have been spending more time at home because of the pandemic. They've been spending more time on social media and those social media has acted as, as uh, to a large extent an echo chamber and, and has really sort of given folks a platform to speak out on a whole variety of different issues. And what that's done is it's really sort of brought to the surface those, those, those sort of divisions that have, have perhaps been there for a long time, but uh, social media has actually given folks a platform to really be more sort of expressive and explicit about those about their views and opinions. Is that where the center has gone? It's being drowned out by the extremes that now have a bigger voice. I, I think that's definitely the case. That is absolutely the case. I mean, you know, so it's really interesting. I mean, there's a question of whether the division that exists, and and again, I mean, you know, people in this survey, three quarters of those surveyed indicate that we have become more polarized over the last year. I mean, that's the, the majority of Canadians. Um, the issue is whether that divide is actually a real divide that actually exists, or are we talking about sort of superficial divisions? Um, do people just really perceive that these divisions exist and, and we're perhaps not as divided as we perceive we are? Um, we're seeing a, a lot of sort of political opportunism happening um, both federally and provincially right across this country where um, politicians are actually using these divisions as political weapons sometimes to their benefit. And it's actually seeking, it's actually serving to exacerbate the situation. It's actually um, amplifying or, or um, increasing those divisions that exist, which is, which is unfortunate. Uh, you talk a bit more about leadership and leadership's role in this, because again, even uh, on your survey here, 72% uh, uh, the COVID pandemic and 73% the, the 2021 federal election. We remember things drastically changed during the federal election campaign when uh, the Liberal Party changed their strategy and started to make it uh, vaccination mandatory. I think by that time we had already over 70% of the population vaccinated prior to the Ottawa protest 
There was like 90% of the population vaccinated, yet we're vilifying the last 10%. And it, it seemed that, uh, you know, why would nine people in a room of 10 pick on the last person? How much has leadership inflamed this? Um, to a large extent, I would say um, they have. Uh, politicians have on, on all sides, on, on yeah. both sides of the equation. Um, I think the reality is, you know, true leaders and, and those exhibiting leadership leadership qualities should be looking for um, things that that unite us and not divide us. You know, things that that bridge those differences. And I mean, let's let's be honest. Let's be frank. I think, um, you know, a lot of the values that we hold as Canadians are are fairly universal, regardless of what individuals' views and opinions may be on some of these matters. Whether we're talking about the, you know, the COVID pandemic or fighting climate change or or the federal election, and we're talking about things like, you know, healthcare and education and, um, you know, things like the war in Ukraine. So we do tend to have more things that that unite us than divide us. But what we're seeing is politicians of all stripes um, focusing in on those things that are dividing us really for political benefit, which. I think in the short term might serve to benefit them, um, but in the longer term, I think it's going to lead us down a path we don't want to go. It's going to create more problems in the end. And as you mentioned, uh, Jason, we have certainly a lot more in common than we do differences and uh, celebrate what we do have in common. That's for sure. Uh, Jason DeSano with us, Director of the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan, talking about the divisiveness that now exists uh, not only in our country, but in plenty. Jason, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Tony, what's on your mind? Oh, good afternoon, Scott. Uh, I was listening to Roy Green there uh, yesterday, and he was saying, how is the uh, government going to pay for the dental programs and the health programs uh, through the NDP, uh, right. whatever they're, they're, they're pushing? One of the things that a lot of people don't realize that if you've got good teeth or you've got dental coverage, your health is better because you're chewing your food and you're not, and bacteria that gets in your teeth doesn't get into yeah. your body and create a problem. And the, with the healthcare, uh, the drugs, then uh, the, uh, if you're treated quickly enough that, you, uh, that it doesn't get too bad. So what are you saying is because we have healthcare, we don't need dental care? No, but the, the point there is that they're looking for the place to pay for it. And yeah. if you uh, have good health, health as far as uh, uh, teeth and, and drugs, then you won't be end up in the hospital. So it's no, oh, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's totally worth it. To, it's preventive, preventative medicine. But I think what's fascinating in all this discussion, uh, uh, Tony, is that uh, we were we're having these discussions about $10 a day child care, about pharmacare, about dental care, uh, and such long before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit, and we realized, because we should have all of this, because we've got this fabulous healthcare system. And look how great it works. And then this should be all the same as that. And now we found out that our healthcare system is full of holes because it's not getting the funding that it needs, whether that's through private or through the federal uh, governments, and then up to the provinces to, to make it all happen. So here we are. Are, and, and the reason that that is, is the government no longer pays for half of Medicare. They started that.
that way back when, but now they pay less than 25%. So what's going to be different a few years from now when federal governments start, stop backing or start backing off of dental care and pharma care and $10 a day daycare? So, uh, again, I think all of these things would be nice to have. I think all of these things are na- needed. We should all have the right to dental care and, and what we need in health care uh, to survive. But we need to find a system that does that. And, and prior to COVID, we all pointed to the health care system like this was the golden goose of the industry. This is the golden goose of the international community. And it's not. The healthcare workers are phenomenal, but they're greatly underfunded. And they'll tell you that till they're blue in the face. And it's not a provincial issue, although the province does uh, distribute health care. It's a lack of finance because the government, the federal governments over years, have constantly sucked the money out of health care. What? They're not going to do that for pharmacare. They're not going to do that for dental care. They're not going to do that for $10 a day daycare. So at the end, what we need is to fix these systems. And we have had the, the head of the Canadian Dental Association on, and he came right out and said, this is not needed. Every province does this. What is needed is those programs to be funded by the federal government. So again, it sounds good. It's populist politics. It gets people to vote for you. It's like taxing the rich. We all need health care. We all need dental care. But at the end of the day, this is all modeled after our health care system. And let's be honest, our health care system sucks. Well, the people, the work they do, the work they do, the people, they're great. But the system is in a vast need of repair. And Justin Trudeau refuses to talk about that with all the provinces. That's my take, Tony. I'll let you go. Thanks for the call. <laughs> All right. Uh, COVID cases are on the increase again uh, with the new variant, uh, a variant of the Omicron, which, of course, spreads more but is less uh, harmful than previous uh, variants that we've had. Uh, many are talking about a sixth wave. I thought this would have been the fifth, but these are all questions we're going to ask. Dion Elman, Associate Professor, Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering, Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering Director at the Medical Operations Research Lab at the University of Toronto, and with us now. Dion, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well, too. Yes, thanks so much. Are we on the sixth wave? I thought this was the fifth wave. How did we get the sixth? Wasn't fourth Omicron? <laughs> uh, so Omicron kind of came and went twice. And, and by went, I just mean subsided some. Uh, you know, definitely whether or not you count this as a fifth wave or a sixth wave, there could be some subjectivity there. But for sure, our cases are going up, up, up. Um, same thing with um, hospitalizations and even ICUs are starting to creep up now. So it's safe to say that uh, while we were in a low period uh, about a month ago, we are we are on the up again. So that's why you would call this, you know, in most uh, interpretations, another wave. Maybe the fifth, maybe the five and a half wave, fifth and a half wave. Does that make sense? Um, so explain, and we're hearing a lot about this. A lot of people are getting anxious again, uh, Dion, in regard to, oh, my God, here we are. The cases are going up. The cases are going up. Uh, forgetting that times are a lot different now in the fifth or sixth wave than they were in the first or second. That being, uh, I think it's 85% of the five plus population vaccinated, well over 90% of those 18 plus. What does that mean? How do we keep this in perspective? So the major thing to to be aware of here is um, looking at case counts, right? Uh, we have to remember that uh, that the case counts that we see reported are limited to a very narrow group of eligible people, healthcare workers, and uh, the most vulnerable. So people who are most likely to be 
uh, triple vaxxed, um, and also most likely to have high exposure. So they're not really representative of the population at large. If you want to understand what's happening in the province, really the only thing that we have to look at um, are hospitalization numbers, which of course are lagging by a couple of weeks, uh, as we all know by now, and uh, wastewater um, samples. So if we look at the wastewater samples, pretty much all across Ontario, those numbers are going up and going up fast. And uh, the Ontario Science Table has estimated, although it's difficult to do, but they have estimated that where we are now is approximately equal to 30 to 35,000 cases a day. So that's actually a lot, right? So people really should be concerned by this number, but it doesn't mean you have to be uh, anxious about, um, you know, rollbacks and changes to our personal lives and existence. Like, you know, with our level well, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Dion, isn't this all about, you know, although this is spreading faster, it simply does not have the impact that this disease had in the in the first wave. And again, fully vaccinated. I've had it. The family's had it. We've moved on, uh, blah, blah, blah. But again, it, it seems that this is a much milder version. Are we getting too hysterical comparing this to the first wave when there was lots of death and ICU uh, administration and now it's people are getting it and moving on. Yeah, so we, you know, it's it's not entirely appropriate to compare this back to the first wave because, as you said, the first wave was a totally different situation. Yeah. The virus itself was was more dangerous. You know, you just had a higher chance of ending up in the hospital, ending up ICU, ending up dead uh, with the first strain than uh, than um, than we do now, and um, that's not just because of vaccines, or although vaccines are tremendously, amazingly effective at keeping you out of the hospital, like making sure your COVID experience, because most of us probably will get it, uh, making sure your COVID experience stays mild. Of course, mild means out of the hospital, not necessarily comfortable, um, but uh, there's still some protection offered um, against contracting COVID. So because Omicron is so mild, like on an individual basis, like, you know, you, you know, you probably don't have a high chance of ending up in the hospital. Any one person doesn't have a high chance of ending up in the hospital, but because Omicron is spreading like wildfire, what that means at the end of the day is that with so many people getting infected, there's still a large number of people that have to end up in the hospital being treated. And that's when we start to see um, Omicron affect people who might not have Omicron or never had a you know terribly severe experience because hospitals are at capacity, over capacity still, which means that um, elective procedures are getting canceled. It's hard to get in to see your doctors, to see your specialists. And uh, just a reminder, um, uh, the term elective surgery doesn't mean something, you know, just totally uh, cosmetic, like a nose job. Elective means uh, not urgent, right? So if you need a knee replacement and you're in terrible pain, that's not technically yeah. urgent. You know, you can you can continue on like that. So anything that could be scheduled as opposed to, oh, my God, we need to operate on you like right now or within the next right. 24 hours, that's considered elective. And so um, the hospital capacity issue is affecting all of us who might need surgeries who you know might have some other emergency that happens like you know fall and hit your head or whatever and you end up in an emergency room with with an even longer wait than uh than usual you know it affects all of us and that's why we all need to be careful and again uh, i said you know, we don't need to be anxious about uh, going back into you know lockdowns or you know severely restricted societal movements but um the one thing that we can and should all do is just keep wearing our masks you know do everything else everything you want to do just wear a mask, right? Not a cloth mask, since we know that Omicron manages to escape a cloth mask, but, you know, a surgical mask, or if you can get your hands on them, N95 or KN95 masks.
Do you get the feeling that we're always blaming the global pandemic for our failure in our healthcare system instead of addressing the healthcare system? You know, like at the end of the day, we've had provinces from left to right, uh, from east to west say, you know what, this is a funding formula issue here that they're all screaming about, including healthcare workers. And it seems we're more interested in keeping people out of the hospital than we are improving our hospital scenario. And again, preventative yeah. medicine is great, but I think this is a lot of this is being used to to take away from uh, the, the notion that our great healthcare system isn't as great as we thought it was. I mean, the people are great, but they, they they're screaming for help. Well, if you rewind the clock three years before COVID started, people were screaming about hospital capacity issues and yeah. funding uh, back yeah. then. Now, and then COVID has just really shown um, a, a definitely bright light on this problem. So everybody's known that this problem has existed and then COVID just came along and, and I don't even want to say it's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's it's yeah. more like, you know, a bag of concrete blocks uh, yeah. that broke the that broke the camel's back. But yes, you know, there's no doubt about it. We need long-term healthcare um, improvement and that really comes down to funding, funding, funding. But we can't just shy away from our own responsibilities uh, during this pandemic, because no matter how much money we pump into healthcare right now, today, repeal uh, Bill 124 that uh, that is driving nurses um, out of the workplace because of uh, their wage cuts, um, you know, not keeping up with inflation. Um, you know, all of that takes years to build up hospital capacity. But if we all just wear our masks right now, we can get through right now. It's hard to believe that in a, a province of 14 and a half million people and in a country of 35 million people or 38, whatever it is now, if we got 168 people in the ICU, we're crippled. To me, that's just not right, Dion. Anyway, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Dion Elman with us, Associate Professor, Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering, Faculty of Applied Science and Inge- Engineering Director, Medical Operations Research Lab, University of Toronto. Thanks so much for your time. Be well. Always a pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You see the gas prices just skyrocketing, unprecedented prices. And it's about time that the government starts putting money back into the people's pocket instead of the government's pocket. Because in my opinion, the people can spend their money a lot wiser than governments. They can stimulate the economy and and create the environment for, for jobs. There you have it. Uh, the premier, Doug Ford, speaking at a news conference uh, today in Oshawa, uh, talking about the expansion of production there in the auto industry and EVs in Ingersoll, and, of course, asked about the gas tax. That was his response to all of that, meaning that uh, January 1st, I believe, for at least six months, they're going to reduce uh, the price of gas. I believe it's 5 point, uh, uh, 5.7 cents per liter. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable energy and former liberal mp he is with us now dan thanks for the time i hope you are well i'm doing fine thank you scott so what are your thoughts on this uh obviously it doesn't happen until after the election july 1st so uh gee whiz a little election politics there but what are your thoughts well i think it's uh you know uh, uh perhaps a little late in the uh, in its coming but uh, i guess i'll take it better take it now than than not have anything the alternative being of course what we're seeing in ottawa which is to find ever more interesting ways to drive up the price of energy and uh, no sense of uh purpose other than to say that uh, at the federal level they want to increase 
prices an extra 60, so that's six zero cents a liter between now and 2030. So uh, compared to this, contrasted as small as it may be, as late as it may be, notwithstanding the fact that you have to win an election to get it, uh, it's uh, it's better than a, uh, I guess the old expression, <laughs> uh, you know, a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. So uh, what the feds taketh, the province is giving some back, basically. Oh, I think the province is uh, giving what amounts to a very small, uh, uh, you know, saving grace for some of us compared to what the feds are taking. And you, you think about their 11.05 cent carbon tax multiplied by 13%. That's 12.6 cents a liter. Uh, you know, this is 5.7 plus HST, so 6.4 cents a liter. Uh, yeah, it's it's less than half of what the federal government uh, is taking and it intends to take. Of course, June, rather July 1 to uh, December 1, July, August, September, October, November, December. Uh, so it looks like it's just the last half of 2022. We'll see if it extends itself into 2023. Remember, the federal and provincial governments are doing very, very well financially. Uh, this time last year, gas is in the 120 range. Now in the 170 range, that 50 cents multiplied by 13 gives the province about a billion dollars. If it, if the price were to stay for a year constant, that would probably allow them enough uh, money to be able to pay for this uh, this uh, deep uh, discount or this 5.7 cent and 5.3 cent decrease plus HST for diesel. Obviously, the higher it goes, the more sales tax they can make. Uh, some say that this is uh, uh, hypocritical because uh, you're giving money people, uh, giving people money back for gas, and yet you're not subsidizing electric vehicles. Well, you are subsidizing electric vehicles in terms of they're being built. Uh, I yeah. suspect that some of the uh, infrastructure that's out there is also being subsidized. Look, I, you know, if you can afford a seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollar Tesla, uh, I don't think you should be asking anybody for uh, you know a plug nickel, much less uh, go out and point fingers. The reason people drive gasoline vehicles isn't for giggles and, and kicks. It's because they need to get to work. And the reason people need diesel is because they need to transport products to and from not just work, but also to make our economy viable. It's the economic workhorse. But you've got dunderheads in this country who think that'd be a great idea to tax it as if there is some kind of replacement. Look, last time I checked, you can't operate a farm equipment, a tractor, an excavator or a multi-level tractor pulling whatever it is using EV batteries. Much as Elon Musk might have the odd little prototype out there, they might work for a couple of hours after then. You got to stick it in the garage again, warm them up for the next three or four hours. So I think, look, we need to get real about this, Scott. The fact is... Uh, gasoline, diesel, oil, these are products the world needs, will demand more of, and for which you cannot replace without doing untold damage, uh, both to uh, our economies, but more importantly, uh, to reality. Reality is that uh, fossil fuels are here to say, and I'm here to uh, make an argument for them. I don't like uh, the oil industry. They've never liked me. And they hate the fact that I predict gas prices because it uh, robs them of, uh, of their ability to, you know, to, to sneak up on people and change the price hmm. of fuel. But I'll be damned if I'm going to let people go out and say this industry is, is worthless because at the end of the day, the only one smiling with that kind of rhetoric is Vladimir Putin. So what are your thoughts on um, and the announcement today in Oshawa? I mean, at one time we thought Oshawa was dead. And here they've added, they're talking about adding another third shift. They're talking about electrifying Ingersoll. Your thoughts there? Well, I think we need to look at all forms of uh, transportation. If we can make more, uh, you know, hydrogen vehicles, battery vehicles, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles, great. But where I draw the line is that none of these things should be forced on people in terms of subsidies, 
or in terms of forcing people to go in a different direction. Because if all this is really a virtue signal about electric vehicles, I want to remind everybody, a vehicle, an electric vehicle takes oil and gas to extract from the earth. One pound of battery takes 500,000 pounds from the earth's crust. I told this to many people last year, it's starting to get a little bit more currency now. Uh, it takes polymers, resins, it takes asphalt, it takes uh, uh, you know, paint. All of these things are done through fossil fuels. So you can have an EV, you can have a hydrogen-driven vehicle, uh, you can have your, uh, you know, your, your fanciful propane vehicle. All of these things need fossil fuels. And the question is, not just carbon, but let's look at the entire impact, environmental impact of building these things. So if the province wants to go out and spend, you know, a quarter billion bucks, the feds kick another quarter, quarter million bucks and multiply that by four or five. Uh, last week it was Stellantis, the week before it was, a month before it was Ford, now it's GM. That's a lot of borrowed money. <laughs> and you're not going to get it by, uh, you know, people paying taxes, buying EVs. You're going to get it by people paying taxes, motor vehicle taxes, fuel taxes. And that's exactly what the government's, I think. It's one of the reasons why neither government is making a half-hearted event, uh, uh, effort at driving these prices down. It allows them to, uh, uh, to, uh, to go for some of their fanciful, uh, you know, types of, uh, of rides. And I, I love EVs. Make no mistake. They're fun to drive but they're not practical. And I don't see a hell of a lot of them in January and February in Northern Ontario. Um, the world, as you mentioned earlier, is asking for more energy. They're talking about drilling more off the East Coast. Uh, NDP doesn't want any more coming out of the ground. How do they square these circles? Well, the NDP has to choose its, uh, its poison. I mean, if they don't like oil and gas, what do they expect us to replace it with? You know, because uh, unless someone's got a really great idea, Windmills and uh, photovoltaics or solar panels don't work. They can't provide the heft of both nuclear, which we've done very well in this province, uh, hydroelectric to a large to a smaller extent, and to a large, massive extent, what oil and gas can do. You can't run your economy without those things. And so, uh, you know, if the NDP wants to live in the world of magic and make believe, go ahead. It explains why they have 21 seats. Perhaps they ought to be uh, reduced to zero seats. Then it might happen anyways, because then the public is getting really ticked off with this inflationary bubble. Much of it self-inflicted we have created this inflationary bubble in canada by destroying and blocking pipelines and choking off our ability to send to the world the very product that we need in in massive amounts about two and a half three million barrels a day would probably balance the world and get us back to a position where we don't have to rely on russia venezuela iran or saudi arabia it's kind of embarrassing that we have to go to these these nations with terrible human rights, much less environmental records, to get our oil from. Because the reality is, folks, you're going to need oil for the next 50 to 100 years, like it or not. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about the break at the pumps from the uh, Doug Ford government, if you re-elect them come July. Dan, thanks for the time. Be well. Good. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, C.W. McCall, who, uh, you know, they said he was uh, a legendary country singer. I'm not sure he'd be that. 
but certainly did have a massive hit with this song in, I don't know, the early 1970s or so. And unfortunately, and he wasn't in the Grammy in memoriam last night. So I thought I'd just help you all out because you, if you watched the Grammys and the in memoriam, you didn't, I don't think you saw C.W. McCall. Uh, but yeah, he, in fact, has passed away this past weekend. He was 93 years old. 93 years old. People are asking what he died from. He was 93 years old. Uh, Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, uh, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, I hope you don't mind us replacing your uh, normal Rush song with some C.W. McCall. I thought you were going to incite fans of Smokey and the Bandit, that they were hoping for a, a, you know, a new Smokey and the Bandit, although Bert is gone, too. And, you know, yes. But yes I, uh, <clears throat> Who would replace Bert? Who could replace Burt Reynolds yeah. and Smokey and the Bandit? Wow. You know what? I mean, there's a four-hour show just in that. Um, yes. <laughs> today, Let's go to the phone, yeah. Scott. Open the phones tonight after 6 o'clock. Who would replace you know what would happen, Burt Reynolds today? and Jackie today? Gleason? Yeah, Jackie. <laughs> what would happen today, and I hate to, uh, I hate to say uh, this, but I think I might be right, is that some film producer would decide, you know what we need? That was sort of kitschy and silly what we need is like tom cruise in a mission impossible style action adventure smoky in the wow. bandit for the cost like of a, really si- a serious smoky in the bandit yeah the backstory the uh, like the old batman the batman <laughs> movies they make now with the origin it's very story. dark the new yeah, smoky's you know, very dark and he's a real you know um what do you call it? the old uh, um where they run the the booze the um uh the moonshiner moonshiners he's a real moonshiner yeah. and it's a backstory yeah. And yeah, the, the cops are truly racist and evil. And Sally Field is a you know is an abused single mother who's escaping from a terrible life. Of, yeah, yeah, you know what? <laughs> they could turn this into something truly horrendous. But you know what? It would probably sell a few tickets. All right. Uh, let's see if Hollywood <laughs> takes up our cue. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, uh, I'm surprised that we haven't. I think there was two Smoking the Bandits though, but I, I don't think, think three. But I, I don't think Burt Reynolds three. was in all of them. I think they had like a Burt Reynolds lookalike in one of them. You know, the, the, the story, I watched a thing on it once upon a time, and it actually is a pretty good story of how they got all these huge stars to go into this movie. Because it was, I mean, if you look back at Smokey and the Bandit, it was not exactly highbrow entertainment. No. And yet, you know, Jackie, as I say, Jackie Gleason and Sally Field and Burt Reynolds, and um, there are others, and you go, man, they, and I can't remember the whole story. Are you sure you're not thinking of Cannonball Run? You're thinking of Cannonball Run, I think. No, no, no. Smokey With Dom DeLuise and all those people. Well, that one, too. But And the other thing about Smokey and the Bandit was, uh, is it Chevy, uh, the Trans Am? Pontiac. Yeah. Pontiac. Oh, yeah. They, they, that turned that car company around oh, yeah. on a dime. Everybody, myself included, everybody wanted the black Trans Am with sure. the on the hood. Everybody. That was, that was an unbelievable, that was all that was, was a giant sales job for that. All right. Uh, I forgot what else I was going to talk to you about. Who's coming up on the show tonight? Uh, by the way, that, that one led, of course, to the great TV series BJ and the Bear, I'm sure, which was also about truckers. And, uh, you know, you can talk about that later. I, I, I was having a hard time figuring out how we talk so much about Smokey and the Bandit here. Anyway, I wanted to uh, thank you for uh, filling in for me last week when my mother passed away. Uh, very much appreciated for that. I know it was uh, sort of a last minute thing, but I appreciate the week off. It was great to have. Thank you so much. No, you know what? These things happen. Very sorry for uh, for that and for your loss. And we didn't say anything, but uh, yes, people, uh, I guess, now know. And uh, yeah, very uh, unfortunate. Glad I could step in and help out a little bit. 
And you know, uh, mom was 88, but uh, what did she die from? Sheesh, I don't know. She was, she was just getting old. I think she missed dad, too. Anyway, Scotty, as always, you're a, you're a first-class guy. Very much appreciated. And the note you sent, uh, very much appreciated. And uh, you have a great show tonight. Did you plug the show? Who's on it? Uh, I didn't plug it. We're going to be talking about, there's a great column in the spec today that I thought was a great question. Are you plugging your work again? No, no, I didn't write it. I didn't write it. Oh. We're going to talk oh. to the author. It was a it was a piece that someone submitted about teachers having to take back control of their classrooms. And I thought, Jeez. good luck with that, even though yeah. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Bon chance trying to tell the, the kids that, you know, mom and dad should stay away and administration should stay out of it, and we should have an organized classroom. Good luck, but I love the idea. Boy, that is a there's a whole show right there. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Thanks so much, Scott. 556, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks to the two Wills as well as Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Scott, picking up on, on your reboot ideas, I think the world needs Zack Snyder's gritty take on the flying nun. <laughs> the flying nun with guns. Huh? That's it.